0: Over a period of 20 years, the Long Island serial killer is suspected of murdering up to 16 people and dumping their bodies along the Ocean Parkway in Long Island. These crimes have never been solved, and as a result, the families of these victims have never seen justice. Some of these victims have never even been identified. This is Ossuary, and we're investigating the Long Island serial killer.
1: We're back.
0: Um, all right. Thanks, guys, for being so patient with us. Um, as many of you know, we're based in New York City, and our city has been super hard hit by
2: COVID-19. I mean, with uh, all of the lockdowns and practicing social distancing and being safe and smart in general, we have not been able to meet up, obviously, to
1: record mm-hmm. our episodes. Um Also, I literally had COVID-19 and for anyone wondering like how bad it really is, or if it still affects you, if you're young and relatively healthy, I can tell you it's absolutely awful. I literally felt like I was dying. So please everyone take it seriously, regardless of your age or health status, it can Mm -hmm. make you extremely sick.
0: Yeah, it's really scary. Um, but I guess with that, this is our first remotely recorded episode. So that's kind of exciting. It's yeah! exciting and it's sad. Yeah, it's a little bit of both at the same time. Um, but yeah, we're really happy that you guys stuck with us and uh, especially through our brief hiatus yeah. of us trying to figure out technology. <laughs> All right, with that, I guess uh, we'll just get into it. Okay, guys.
1: So. First things first, um, I feel like we need to start this episode with a trigger warning. Um, we're going to be going into some very gory details about decapitation and dismemberment um, because of the nature of these crimes. And we just want to be upfront with our listeners that this falls into the harder to hear end of true crime. So yeah. please just, I would love you to listen to this episode, but just keep this in mind. Absolutely. Um,
2: if, yeah, yeah, if you have to, you know, fast forward 15 seconds from time to time that's Mm -hmm. totally okay.
0: And we're also going to be posting some um, links to our sources and some extra information on our website as well as our Instagram. So if there's anything that you feel like you wanted to follow up on or that you weren't getting enough of because you needed to fast forward, which honestly, there have been moments that I wish I could fast forward through these cases, but we're here bringing it to you. So, um, but yeah, you can find those there. Uh, We have a hefty list of sources, so we obviously can't list every single one of them. Otherwise, we'd be here for three hours.
2: Um, But I do want to highlight that we are going to be including links to the Doe Network.
0: um, Yeah, so we're going to be posting some links to the Doe Network, which is basically like a website that pulls together all of the unidentified missing persons information onto one space. Uh, We're going to put some photos, some reconstructions from that website on our Instagram, Um, you know, Take a look.
2: Yeah, take a look. There's composite there's sketches. There's lists of various belongings, including like clothing or jewelry belonging to victims. A couple of our victims, as you're going to learn, have uh, very distinguishing tattoos, which maybe you could recognize. So after you listen, um, feel free to you know go over to our website, take a look at the stuff there. And if anything rings a bell, please feel free to reach out to the proper authorities. Definitely.
1: All right. Yeah, let's get into it. So guys, so last episode, we talked about the Gilgo Beach form. Um, But as we know, unfortunately, they're not the only bodies found along Gilgo Beach, and worse yet, there are a number of cases outside of this area that all seem to be possibly connected. So let's dive in first, um, looking to the bodies around Gilgo Beach that were found.
2: So there's going to be a little bit of overlap here between Sydney's research and mine, but I'm going to talk about five unidentified victims here. I'm going to be discussing these five victims in the chronological order in which they were discovered, and our first victim is known as Fire Island Jane Doe. She is believed to be between 18 and 50 years old, which is obviously a very wide range, and the first remains of Fire Island Jane Doe were found to be her severed legs. They were discovered by wandering beachgoers wrapped in plastic at Blue Point Beach, Long Island on April 20th, 1996. Now, the reason that Fire Island Jane Doe is linked in with the Gilgo Beach unidentified victims is because her skull was found off of Ocean Parkway nearly 15 years later to the day on April 12th, 2011. Her estimated date of death is currently simply listed as 1996. In terms of distinguishing features, she has several scars. Her right lower leg has a 3.5-inch scar on the lateral mid-leg area, another one-inch scar on her lower leg, as well as a half-inch scar on her ankle. She also seems to have a surgical scar on her left leg, approximately two inches long, with suture scars near the left ankle. She has red nail polish on all of her toes.
1: So- just like the thing that stands out to me about that is it's such a long time between the initial find and then her skull, 15 years. That's yeah, a huge so, gap. Right. So it kind of, I feel like it's really interesting that her skull was found on the ocean parkway because this is near Gilgo, right? Yeah. But this, has there been any clues if like the skull was dumped at a later date um, or was it most likely discarded at the same time as the legs and it just wasn't found for 15 years?
2: So I didn't find any indicator that her skull was dumped at a later date or disposed of at a later date. What I personally think is that the April searches that, you know, turned up all of these bodies probably Mm -hmm. just resulted in the discovery of her skull, which had previously gone undiscovered.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure.
2: So the second and third victims are Jane Doe number three and an unidentified toddler, called Baby Doe. Jane Doe number 3 is dubbed peaches by police investigators and her torso has a heart-shaped peach tattoo with a small bite taken out of it. When I say bite taken out of it, I mean the tattoo is designed that way, not that anybody actually took a bite out of her body. I think that that does need to be clarified because we will cover something somewhat similar at a later point and I think that that distinction is very important. So, Peach's torso was discovered by a hiker on June 28, 1997, in a secluded area near Park Drive in Rockville Center, Long Island. The torso was in a plastic bag inside a Rubbermaid container, which also contained a dark pillowcase dotted with flowers and a maroon towel. An estimated date of death was no more than three days prior to the discovery. Peach's was found to be black, between 20 and 30 years old, and had a surgical scar on her abdomen at the time of discovery, thought to be a cesarean section scar. Now, due to the lack of ability to publish a composite sketch, investigators actually published Peach's tattoo in a national tattoo magazine, hoping that her artist might recall who she was. And they did receive a lead from her artist, a man named Steve Cullen in Bristol, Connecticut. He recalled her as a young black woman, 18 to 19 at the time of her visit, and there with... I've had two different sources. One said she was there with her aunt and her cousin, and one source said that she was there with a girlfriend. He said that she claimed to be from either the Bronx or Long Island and recalled her saying that she was having boyfriend trouble at the time. But unfortunately, this is the full extent of the lead, and it didn't really pan out. While Peach's torso was found in Hempstead Lake State Park in 1997, it wasn't until April 4th, 2011, that more of her remains were discovered 15 miles away near that of an unidentified toddler on Cedar Beach. And it wasn't until December of 2016 that DNA evidence linked Peach's to the unidentified toddler. Peach's was proven to be Baby Doe's mother. Wow. yeah so baby doe is estimated to be between three and four years old and baby doe was found wrapped in a blanket with a 16 inch gold chain and a pair of gold hoop earrings more interesting baby doe and peaches were actually buried nearly 10 miles apart from each other and baby doe was only 250 feet from jane doe number six who sydney's going to cover a little
1: later and question I would just why do you think that baby doe was buried with the uh, hoop earrings and the gold chain i mean it kind of seems a bit unusual for a four-year-old to be wearing a gold chain and earrings is it implied that she had her ears pierced and was wearing these or these were like dumped yeah with i her? also
0: think that the fact that baby doe was wrapped in a blanket is really interesting you know a lot of true crime people out there will know that sometimes killers might feel a sense of shame mm-hmm. or guilt or even remorse over a body and could use a personal item or really just anything to cover the body as a way to mediate those feelings. Obviously, that doesn't make up for what happened here. Nothing about hurting children is ever okay. But I do think it's a really interesting detail to keep in mind. Also, a gold chain and earrings, they're not inexpensive. And, I mean, it's not super uncommon to have your ears pierced that young i had my ears pierced at a really young age and in some households that's actually a rite of passage but these pieces of jewelry would have been meaningful for the family and the baby so could that have been left on the body of baby doe out of some sort of remorse or guilt it's hard for us to think about a monster who could do this to a child or anyone as having human feelings but the fact of the matter is with this amount of unanswerable questions it seems like anything could be possible and so, Emma, I think it's really important that you pointed that out, because what does that mean about the psychology of the killer, right? About the psychology of the person who put baby Doe in her final resting place.
1: Yeah. And also, I think the fact that, um, that the, the earrings and the necklace are there says that this wasn't a robbery-motivated crime. Definitely. Right? This I is not really about important.
2: something with, you know, that level of monetary value. This isn't about yeah. that at all. So our next victim, victim number four, is a Jane Doe, also with a tattoo-based moniker, in this case, Cherries. Now, Cherries is geographically separate from the other unidentified Gilgo Beach bodies, having been found in Mamaroneck, New York. But she does tend to be listed with the other unidentified victims found on Gilgo Beach, so we're going to keep her in this group. On March 3rd, 2007, in Harbor Island Park, a dark suitcase containing a woman's torso washed up on shore. The torso, found to have numerous stab wounds, contained a small tattoo of two red cherries on a green stem located on the victim's right breast. Hence the Jane Doe's given name of cherries. Her estimated date of death is given, according to the Doe Network, simply as days prior.
1: So I'm just going to throw it out there. Do you guys think think it's interesting and if there's any significance between the two girls having fruit related tattoos I know that I'm casting the net super wide here (laughs) I mean why not I think it's just interesting that a they both the uh, tattoo was both on their breasts Mm -hmm. one was on the left one was on the right and is there any like I know that some pimps will tattoo their um, girls in order to show ownership and I'm just wondering is there a possibility that this is connected in some way it's, I mean, I don't think we have any answers, but I feel like it's a question we should ask. Can throw it out there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it, I mean, it is a wide net to cast, but like the fact of the matter is, you know, there's a lot of information that we don't know and that we can't know. And yeah. given that, and given the fact that they are both unidentified, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. crazy to think that there's a possibility of them knowing each other, right? It's, yeah. It's definitely a possibility. I don't think that we should draw any conclusions. um, But I do think that, you know, keeping it in mind and sort of bringing it up and having that conversation is super important because there's just so much we don't know.
2: So 18 days later, on March 21st, 2007, Cherry's right foot and leg were discovered at Cold Spring Harbor. And the following day, her other leg was found to have washed up in Oyster Bay. Actually, I just learned this, on the property of James Dolan, the CEO of Madison Square Garden. Now, I think Whoa. that that's just a coincidence. Um it's just very strange we'll see and i'll talk about this right underneath here um these three locations are actually in three separate counties um Mm. but since her remains were first discovered in mamaronek it's the mamaronek police which are leading the investigation now here's why i'm going to tell you why i think that it's just an absolute creepy fluke that her remains washed up on the property of the ceo of medicine square garden um the storm floods, which led to Cherry's remains washing up, mean that her remains, according to authorities, could have originated from pretty much anywhere.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think there's something really interesting about disposing of a body in water, you know? And mm-hmm. being at the mercy of, like, a very different type of element than simply dumping a body in a forest or yeah. at the side of the road, right? It brings up the question of mobility. Like, does this individual have a boat? If so, you know, what does that mean about his body? profession about his social standing etc um obviously we would need to know more about the source of disposal which like sarah said yeah. is just about near impossible But I think it's really important to think about the stakes of dumping a body in water versus on land. Yeah, definitely. Um, So
2: next I want to talk about the belongings that were found with Cherries. Her belongings included a pair of gray champion sweatpants, a cream or tan voice long sleeve shirt, a red coconut republic camisole with Spanish labels, and an underwire bra size 38B. Now a closer examination of the suitcase which Cherries was discovered in yielded one it is solely distributed by Walmart and two contained with its within its tiny folds they found two scraps of paper which when placed together looked as if they resembled a calendar containing the Spanish word cinco and the English phrase beginning to live So as I said, Mamaronek Police are leading this investigation, and as of Valentine's Day this year, they actually are renewing their attempts to break the case, formally suggesting Cherry's possible connection as a victim of the Long Island serial killer in a news conference with WNBC New York. Mark Gatta, a detective sergeant with the Mamaronek Police Department, stated she's been victimized twice. Somebody murdered her, and then they stole her identity, which is almost worse, and that's in reference to our inability to identify Cherry's based on any composite sketch due to the absence of her." skull. In the same interview, Suffolk County Police Department declined to consider the possibility of Cherry's inclusion as an LISK victim, but Gatta also pointed out, quote, the violence that was done to these women was very similar. Are they related? It's possible. It's possible because this sort of thing is not an everyday occurrence. Now, for those people who aren't familiar with um, these locations, Mamaroneck is actually in Westchester County. So it's not Nassau. It's not Long Island. Um it's kind of on like the other, it runs parallel. There's a body of water from between Long Island and Mamaroneck, but like I grew up in Westchester County and like, he's right. This kind of thing is not every day.
1: Um. Okay. So question, just so I'm getting yeah. this clear, they never found Cherry's head? No, Cherry's head was never found. If you
2: think about it, we also had uh, Fire Island Jane Doe. Her skull was discovered later. Um, So the next victim I'm going to talk about is John Doe, and he is an Asian male. um, Found April 4th, 2011, during the same search which uncovered Peaches and Baby Doe, John Doe was found wearing women's clothes, and it's believed that he may have been a sex worker who was killed when it was discovered that he was not a cisgender female according to the doe network john doe is approximately 17 to 23 years old with an estimated date of death being i have it here as is five to ten years prior to discovery but i also believe that there was something stating that he may have uh died in the 90s
0: yeah so i definitely think that there's been a bit of yeah. headway made um i do know that through web sleuths and potentially the Doe Network and a number of other sources that we've looked at, um, there has been some talk of potentially linking his remains with a missing persons report from much earlier than when they say that John Doe was killed. So that does complicate things. Obviously, nothing is set in stone. I don't think that it's right for us to say the person's name. On this podcast, unless there's more conclusive evidence that sort of links them together because we don't want to sort of muddle the facts. But I do know that there has been some sort of potential headway made in the case. Um, So I guess we'll just have to see. But also, it's really important to note that... um, John Doe's remains were largely skeletal when they were found. Yeah, he was was skeletal remains at that point. We do know that he had been dead for quite some time. You know, it was not a recent killing. It was very likely something that was at least 10 years old, if not older.
2: So I also found that he may have had a musculoskeletal disorder, which might have affected the way in which he walked. Mm -hmm. And another distinguishing characteristic is that he had incredibly poor dental health. Mm -hmm. He was missing several uh, top and bottom molars as well as a front tooth. Mm -hmm. Now, according to a New York Times article published about a month after the discovery of his body in 2011, John Doe appeared to have died a violent death, but the circumstances appeared different from those of the other people whose bodies have been found.
1: I I mean, I wonder what they mean by another type of violent death are they suggesting blunt force trauma are they suggesting a stabbing It's very vague i'd seen some sort of statement
2: coming across in my research that john doe had died from blunt force trauma but i didn't find
0: anything to corroborate that so i think i can also add a little bit to that first i want to point out that because it's an open case they might actually be withholding the cause of death from the public on purpose On top of that, however, because his body was largely skeletal when it was found, it means that any damages to soft tissue would not have been able to be determined because of the level of decomposition, right? Like take a stab wound to Mm -hmm. the kidneys or intestines, for instance. The knife only passes through soft tissues and upon discovery during the first few weeks or maybe even a month after death, Mm -hmm. it would be fairly easy to detect given that there were no external factors affecting the... um, wound. So if John Doe was killed by a stab wound to the abdomen, we wouldn't be able to determine that because Mm. there was simply no more soft tissue to look at. Yeah, exactly. However, if they are suggesting blunt force trauma for some reason, especially, you know, the type that's so violent that it causes death, in my experience working with skeletal human remains, there's usually splintering, cracking, or fracturing of the bones that is detectable. However, with only bones to consider, there are still a lot of factors that cannot be determined. For instance, blunt force trauma could be the cause of death if the assailant broke someone's rib with such force that it punctured their lung. This wouldn't be easily detected when the body is found because we know broken ribs don't always cause death. But if there's no lung tissue to make that determination, then, you know, obviously we're at a stalemate. Cracking and splintering of the skull, however, tells a little bit more in that you can infer that a person had a serious head injury, which, you know, if critical enough, can cause death, as well as the fact that in some cases, hemorrhaging in the brain can actually stay in the interior of the skullcap, and that would give you the tools to discover cause of death. However, that being said, at the time that the body was discovered, it was so skeletal, and it had been there for so long, and it had been exposed to so many elements that it just sort of leads me to believe that any staining or really conclusive factors
1: regarding cause of death might have just been washed away with time. Yeah. I mean, just kind of summing up from that, this is a whole lot of bodies in a small area to not be related to each other, uh, right? Definitely. I mean, I feel like we have to call that out. And um, But I mean, it doesn't really end there because Sydney, um, you're about to take us through the bodies that were found in other parts of long Mm -hmm. island and they also might be connected too
0: yeah absolutely so as previously mentioned by sarah jane doe six or manorville jane doe as she's come to be known was found on november 19th of 2000 or well part of her was at least her nude torso was found wrapped in plastic bags her head hands and right foot were missing Nearly eleven years later, on april fourth, twenty eleven, her head, hands, and foot would be found Mm -hmm. along Ocean Parkway and Gogo Beach. So Manorville Doe's Torso was found in the area of Manorville, Long Island. More specifically, she was found a half mile west of Housie Manor Road to the north of Long Island Expressway. So for those who don't really know the area, it's a wooded area, I mean, it's definitely got its fair share of, um, of forestry, but it's also, that specific part is well-trafficked by both foot and by car. So it just seems a little strange that that's where the killer would choose to dump the body. So
1: Sydney, I think that that location is really important, like you said, because although it's heavily wooded, it's also well-trafficked by foot and by car. Mm-hmm. And to me, this says that he's familiar with the area, and I think he's probably local to the area.
0: Yeah, it's re- that's really interesting, and I'm actually going to get back to that point, um, because I have a great quote that is talking Ooh, about a good this specifically. Think- so, Manerville Doe's remains were largely skeletal when they were found, even though it was actually approximated that her time of death was only weeks before her discovery. She had no clothing, no jewelry, or any distinguishing external factors that might have given even a hint of a clue to her identity. I find this to be really important when considering the facts, and when considering the bodies found as a whole, so let's just keep this in mind as we discuss further. Manorville Doe would have been around 18 to 40 years old at the time of her death, a large age range, however, but due to the skeletal nature of her remains and the missing extremities, it would have been pretty difficult to determine a more exact age. She was white and biologically female, reportedly 5'2 with brown hair. When her head, or skull, and hands and foot were found, it was determined that she had previously broken her nose, a fracture which healed at some point, whether years or weeks or months before her death. Likely, due to the state of her remains when they were found, the cause of death has either not been determined or not shared with the public, like we spoke of before with John Doe.
1: And Sydney, I think a few things about that are super important. So Manifel Doe, she really closely matches the profile of the Gilgo four, right? So she's white, she's petite, 5'2", I believe you said, brown hair. Um, And I think in terms of physical appearance, she sounds very similar to Amber, for example, Maureen Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I mean, they, the ones with brown hair, and then also like just the size as well of the others. Do you think that Mm -hmm. maybe the killer saw someone with a smaller stature as being easier to overcome perhaps? And that's why he targeted like more petite women.
0: Yeah. I think what you mentioned, Emma is really important. I mean, the stature of the victims as being petite, you know, tells us a couple of things. The first is that they are potentially easy to overpower. So, you know, is our, Killer, someone who specifically targets people he knows that he can, you know, inflict some sort of violence on? And if so, what does that say about his own physicality? Um, but further, I think it's also really important to think that, you know, we've seen so many times, and I'm sure so many people in the true crime community have seen that a number of serial killers have that type, that profile. I mean, the classic example is Ted Bundy, who, you know, specifically targeted young women with long brown hair parted down the middle. And that's not, you know, an accident. And, I mean, it is important to say that a lot of the victims that we're discussing are not similar physically. You know, we have a multitude of races present, um... And we're going to get into that. We're going to sort of compare victim profiles and discuss um, backgrounds and the factor of race. But for right now, um, we're going to sort of take the time and make the space for conversations about each victim just so that we can sort of honor what we can about them. Obviously, we're talking about a number of people who have had their identity taken from them in more than one way um so for now we're really focusing on each victim individually that brings us to our next victim who was also found in manorville three years later on july 26th 2003 a woman walking her dog just off the northwest corner of halsey manor road near the long island expressway stumbled upon a human torso wrapped in plastic her head hands and forearm were missing This was determined to be the body of Jessica Taylor, a 20-year-old woman who was last seen on July 21, 2003. Nearly eight years later, in March of 2011, Taylor's head, hands, and forearm were found along Ocean Parkway in Gilgo Beach. Sound familiar? So, Taylor was known to be a sex worker at the time of her disappearance, and would largely report to her boyfriend and pimp, Khalil White. Taylor had a distinguishing tattoo on her back, one which was brutally slashed at by her killer, likely in hopes of covering any identifying marks. This, however, didn't work. The medical examiner in charge of Taylor's case was able to reconstruct her tattoo and make out that it said, Remy's angel with an angel wings. This was the break that they needed to determine her identity. Remy was the nickname that she had used when referring to her boyfriend and pimp, Khalil White. While we know that Taylor was born in upstate New York, went missing in Brooklyn on July 21st, 2003, and had been arrested as a sex worker previously, we don't know much else about her background or history. In all the media representations of Jessica Taylor, it appears that her mugshot was used as her main visual identifier. This really doesn't help the public relate to her as a victim, um, and instead just sort of propagates this idea that she's just, you know, another criminal that something bad happened to. According to Thomas Spoda, the Suffolk County DA, the manner of disposal of Manorville Doe was similar to that of Miss Taylor, but distinctly dissimilar to the four originally identified Gilgo victims. So remember, the Gilgo four were buried in burlap and their remains were largely intact. The dismemberment of Manorville Doe and Jessica Taylor, whose body was also mutilated, as well as having been found with no clothing or jewelry or any external factors, all seemed to point to methods to attempt to conceal their identities. Spoda went on to say the killer, or killers, of Jane Doe 6 and Miss Taylor went to extra lengths in an attempt to prevent the victims from being identified. That is clearly not so with any of the other remains that we have found. So, in sum, this MO is not the case with many of the other bodies that Sarah has covered, or the Go-Go 4. Whether this is simply a change in MO, which is possible, though often unlikely, or a second serial killer, which statistically seems almost just as unlikely but definitely possible, we don't know. But what we do know is that they are connected in where certain remains of the Manorville women were found. Namely, as close as 250 yards from the Gilgo Beach victims. Could this be a coincidence or a dumping ground for a far more prolific serial killer than we could have imagined? Whatever the circumstances are, this case or these cases seem almost too strange and far-fetched to be real, and yet, not only is it real, but it's still
1: unsolved. I mean, I feel like this, like similar to what you said, there's the two options. It's possible that it's an MO that's evolving, or it is possible that we have multiple killers here because of the known victims, it appears that through the 90s, they were mainly dismembered except for Baby Doe and John Doe. And then we have the Gilgo victims where they weren't dismembered. So. Personally, right now, for me, I feel like there's multiple killers. So we're going to sidestep for a moment and we're going to talk about there's two other potential victims. So there's Natasha Chugo and Tanya Rush. Um, and the reason why we're separating these two from the rest is simply because their deaths haven't been directly linked to the other killings by law enforcement, though they are absolutely discussed. In quite a lot of detail through various true crime networks, so I think it's really important that we still discuss them here too.
0: Yeah, Emma, absolutely. Um, so I'll start with Tanya Rush. Tanya Rush was thirty-nine years old when she was found murdered along Southern State Parkway, just off the shoulder of the exit for Newbridge Road on Long Island, on June twenty-seventh of two thousand and eight. Rush was a mother to three children and was described by her daughter Tamela as a great person, a great human being, and she just didn't have to go that way. Rush's dismembered body was found inside a suitcase along the heavily trafficked area. According to the Long Island Press, Detective Michael O'Sullivan of Major Crimes described the scene saying whoever put her here didn't make a great effort to hide her. O'Sullivan said, Had they dragged her body into the wooded area, police might have never discovered the suitcase. At the time of her death, Rush was an active sex worker, and it is believed that this might have been why the Brooklyn native was on Long Island leading up to the circumstances of her death. In an interview with PIX11 News, Detective O'Sullivan said he believed the crime likely was not committed in Brooklyn and occurred somewhere in the vicinity of Long Island. Rush's last known whereabouts were caught on camera around 3 a.m., leaving... 345 Livonia Avenue, where the victim lived, on June 23rd, 2008. Rush was seen with two unidentified individuals, a man and a woman. However, these two individuals left Rush and are likely not implicated in the crime. Her remains were found four days later. It's just so sad. I mean, we know that Rush had a drug problem and we know that she was a sex worker, but regardless of those factors, nobody deserves... You know, nobody yes. deserves that kind of treatment. Nobody deserves to die that way. And it just, you know, it's especially heartbreaking to think that she left behind three children um, who all remember her as being funny and kind and warm hearted.
1: And just one thing to note as well that if she is related to these cases, she is in the prime hunting time of this killer. And the summer months over that area is when he attacked the most. Um, I think in almost a lot of the cases, it's June, July, some later, but that June month seems to be very specific. So I think it's, it definitely adds to the, you know, potential that this is related because of the time of death or the time that she went missing.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that there's something to mm-hmm. the, time the time frame, frame of the yeah. killer. But I also think that it's really important to remember that Long Island does cater mm-hmm. to a summer community. Um, you know, there's a chance that whoever committed mm-hmm. these crimes, whether it's one person or multiple people, um, they might live a quote unquote normal True. life. Um and the summer might be the time that they can sort of access these victims in some way. Uh, you know, it's really terrifying to think about it that way, but I think it needs to be said.
1: That also says to me, though, that they have a lot of privilege. That sounds like they have a disposable income that they can take somewhere yeah, off. Definitely. It sounds to me like they're people of privilege um, and have a lot of money, or a significant amount anyway.
0: Next is the case of Natasha Jugo, which is just plain eerie. Jugo was last seen leaving her home in Queen's Village on March 13th, wearing nothing but her pajamas and getting into her car. Jugo, who was 31 at the time, drove to Gilgo Beach, and her personal items were found next to her abandoned car. Her body washed up on shore not far from where the other bodies were found a few days later. However, due to her past history of mental illness, it was not ruled to be related to the other victims and could likely have been a suicide.
1: I think given the history of Gilgo Beach, it's a huge coincidence that she was found here. And what made her – because there's something else that I heard that she was seen taking a phone call, and that's what prompted her to get into her car. And why drive from all the way in Queens specifically to Gilgo Beach? Oh, yeah. I
0: think that detail of her, you know, getting into her car wearing nothing but her pajamas, especially after taking a phone call, like, it doesn't seem – planned out it doesn't seem pre-thought it almost seems like a like a reaction to you know you hearing something on the phone which we've seen before with one of the Mm -hmm. go go four victims
1: yes think about amber how she like left her apartment hotel whatever it was really unexpectedly and left things behind
0: yeah totally i mean again we bring in Natasha Jugo and Tanya Rush because we believe that, you know, there's just too many factors here, too many coincidences. Um, and I think it's it's necessary to present all the facts. Um, it's just so strange. So obviously there's a lot
2: of information here. We have nine victims of varying ages, several different races, and even a male victim among female victims. So. Let's talk specifics, starting with Cherries. Cherries is believed to be of Hispanic or Black descent, which is particularly interesting since she, Peaches, and John Doe all fall outside of the same racial identification as the remaining unidentified victims. And as I'm sure many of our true crime listeners know, serial killers rarely kill outside of their own racial background. This isn't, however, always the case, and we can simply look at Richard Ramirez's Reign of Terror as an example of that.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the diversity of ethnic backgrounds among victims is super interesting. Do you think this could possibly indicate that the killer is acting on opportunity as opposed to a calculated pre-planned victim and attack? I think to
2: a certain degree that could make some sense. I mean, if he felt comfortable enough in his surroundings and confident enough that he could achieve his goals, then I don't see why not.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I also think that it's important to note the inconsistency with the treatment of bodies, um, especially of peaches, cherries, and Tanya Rush, as opposed to Mannerville Doe and Jessica Taylor. To me, Mannerville Doe and Jessica Taylor's bodies were methodically disposed of. They were placed in the same exact area, nude and in plastic bags. This stands out to me because it seems like someone who has almost perfected their crime, right? Mm -hmm. Peaches and cherries were both dismembered and found in containers of some sort. Um, Peaches in a Rubbermaid and cherries and Tanya Rush were found in a suitcase. This difference in disposal method also aligns with the outlier of race. So what does that mean in relation to the case as a whole? It seems so random. And maybe even race is not a factor in this killer's process at all. Um, I'm not really sure what to make of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think I find the change in method of disposal really interesting because, if these murders are related, then why do the disposals change so much? Why is cherry dumped in a suitcase versus peaches in the Rubbermaid container versus others wrapped in plastic? And then, of course, later on, wrapped in burlap. So, I mean, do you think, like, the purpose was just using what he easily had on hand? And then this might tie into the idea that these crimes were opportunistic and not pre-planned as such. And I also think that when we're thinking about our suspects, um, whoever had the connection to the burlap supply, right? It'd be super interesting to see if the bodies changed to being wrapped in burlap versus the other methods. If that coincided with the time that perp or suspect, shall I say, started their job, that gave them access to the burlap, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I definitely think that um, access is like a super important point to Consider um, and I also just sort of want to take this time to reiterate that because of this change in disposal methods, I mean, especially because you know you have a, a number of victims who are left with certain distinguishing factors, and then you have you have some other ones like the Mannerville bodies and the Gogo four who seem so methodically placed. Mm-hmm. It just seems like there could be more than one killer. You know, we yeah. have to sort of think about that. This could be the evolution of a. a mo but it also could be two different people working in a similar area yeah we definitely right. don't want to rule that out
1: mm-hmm. yeah and then i mean kind of leaning on from that the tattoos so jessica taylor's tattoo was mutilated which you know was possibly to avoid identification and aside from the obvious dismembering peaches and Cherry's tattoos weren't mutilated So if again, if this is the same killer, would it make sense over time while the MO evolves that they become more cautious of identification?
2: I think that's definitely the case, especially considering, you know, in modern times, it's so easy to transmit information around the world in literal seconds via the internet. It would be incredibly easy for police departments and investigators to share a tattoo across various platforms in the hopes that it might be recognized by family members, just like what was done by publishing Peach's tattoo in a national tattoo magazine. And as we know, her artist did remember her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely
0: think that that point of the mutilation of the tattoos versus non-mutilation is really important, but I also think it's important to point out that tattoos and physical attributes, they're not the only distinguishing factors relating to identity. So Manor Doe and Jessica Taylor were both found nude, whereas Peaches and Cherries, who were also dismembered, were found with various bits of clothing and textiles and I think it's important to consider this because that specific act of taking off clothing and removing any jewelry or external factors um, also po- points to the perp's diligence in trying to make these bodies unidentifiable. So if we think of Emma's question of if this is an evolution of MO, um, what can be said about the presence or lack thereof of clothing with the Manorville torsos? Manorville seems so much more controlled almost as controlled as the go-go four, actually. Um, Just controlled and compulsive, leaving the remains in the same spot, so compulsive that it doesn't even matter to him that they've been found there before. He just has this He has to do that. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I mean, it's scary, but it's also something really important to think about, that sort of controlled aspect.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this timeline of dismembering and disposing bodies is really important because let's think about it. If this is the same perp, why did he change? So from what I can see, the murders from as early as 1982, which is the first potential victim connected to these crimes, um, through the murder of Tanya Rush in 2008, they were all dismembered. Then after this, with such cases as the Gilgo Beach 4, we then start to see them dumped intact. So what made him change or what made him stop dismembering? Did he stop having access to the secluded location where he dismembered the bodies? Or do you think he just became more confident in his ability to murder and not get caught. And that he didn't need to go through this process of dismembering the bodies anymore.
2: So a changing MO is actually not all that uncommon. I mean, the East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, now recognized as Joseph D'Angelo, as well as the Zodiac Killer, both switched between MOs during their murder sprees, with Irons alternating between use of a firearm and bludgeoning, and Zodiac utilizing both stabbing and shooting as a means of murder. Now, I don't want to rely too heavily on Zodiac because I'm sure some people out there, including Sydney, who I know, ascribe to the possibility of the Zodiac being multiple multiple perpetrators, but I do think that those two are good enough examples here. So to give an exact definition of MO, which I don't think we have yet, um, I'm going to rely on John Douglas, who you guys know and who a lot of our listeners know as the author of Mindhunter, which was recently adapted into the Netflix series, which was so good. He's also a famed FBI behavioral analyst And he defines it as kind of like a learned dynamic behavior, which is obviously subject to change. You know, if the crime isn't perfect, then our perpetrator Mm -hmm. is going to want to perfect it. Now, according to a Psychology Today article that I was reading the other day, a serial killer will alter and refine his MO to accommodate new circumstances or to incorporate new skills and information, such as what you said, Emma, like possibly losing access to a secluded location Mm -hmm. or realizing that leaving the tattoos intact can make recognition of a victim easier and therefore up the chances of the perpetrator's detection. One of the articles that I found in the New York Times recently talked about the discovery of some of the unidentified bodies, and it pointed out that none of them were found in wrapped in burlap, as we talked about, and it also mm-hmm. said that there were other differences found which separated them from the Gilgo Four, but it doesn't say what they are, and that's probably just because this is an open investigation. What it does say, however, is that these differences raise the possibility that the unidentified victims were unrelated to our Gilgo Four. However, again, and this is the most interesting tidbit I think I found about this, um, the article also says that the differences could be ascribed to the development of the killer's technique over time. Wow.
0: Yeah. So I also want to um, bring in an interesting quote that came from the New York Times, and it is really referring back to something that Emma had said earlier about um, the... Manorville bodies having potentially been placed by someone who knows the area. Um, because I found this quote to be interesting, it sort of contrasts from what Emma had said, and I just think it's something that we should consider. So the quote reads, But most of the crowd at Maples the other day agreed that if a local had done any of the killings, no body would ever have been found. A longtime local, they said, would know the tens of thousands of wooded and swampy acres around Manorville well enough to dispose of a body for good. That is so chilling. Wow. (laughs) Oh, man. So I think this is super interesting to think about, um, especially because the Manorville torsos were found Mm -hmm. so shortly after having been killed and dumped, um, and the killer didn't really take that much pain in hiding the bodies where no one would ever find them. Whereas the Gilgo Four were not as easily found without cadaver dogs. Is our Manorville butcher not actually from Manorville at all? Or is he so compelled to leave them where they would be found that he can't help himself? I just think this is really interesting to think about. Especially because, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about the controlled aspect of mm-hmm. the case and of Gilgo Four in some ways. But then we also have these two very different disposal methods, Um, you know, that favor... Hiding a body for good, um, or at least a long time, and and actually just Mm -hmm. dumping a body out in the
1: open. Interesting. So, guys, let's just summarize the victims we've talked about so far. We have the Gilgo Beach Four, which is Melissa, Amber, Maureen, and Megan, and then of course we have Shannon. They were all murdered between 2007 to 2010 and found along Gilgo Beach with cause of death by manual strangulation. Of course, however, Shannon's cause of death is not completely clear, but her hyoid bone was missing, which may indicate manual strangulation. We then have the five victims Sarah talked about that were found in and around Gilgo Beach, and then the four victims that Sydney discussed in Manneville and surrounding areas. So this leaves us questioning, is this the work of one murderer or multiple?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's also really important to remember that Long Island has a long history of having multiple active serial killers at one time.
1: Whoa.
2: Hey guys, you ready for some spooky shit?
1: So, guys, during this lockdown, I've been getting into the best show ever. It's called Paranormal Caught on Camera. It's got everything. It's got poltergeist. It's got ghosts. It's got aliens. It's got Bigfoot. And it also has Ben Kissel, which is the fucking best thing ever, right?
2: Definitely the best part of that. Just Definitely. Absolutely.
0: I will watch anything with Ben Kissel. Yep.
1: I think I've got everyone hooked on the show. And there was this really interesting episode recently where they were showing this uh, like UFO over, I think it was like a religious site in Jerusalem. It was the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Yes. I saw it. Yeah. Right. So basically you see this giant like ball of light drop directly down and hover and then shoot back up again and just disappear. And the weirdest thing is um, when my husband saw that, he said, holy shit, I saw the exact same thing a few years ago in Australia. And I was saying, he's like, I swear I wrote like a, I made like a Facebook post about it. So me being the investigator that I am (laughs) and the Facebook post within like 30 seconds. And yeah, in the Facebook post, he describes exactly the same thing, but in like Outback Australia in the middle of nowhere. And now we're completely convinced that he saw a UFO as well. Cause there's nothing that just drops down directly down like that with no tail whatsoever, just a ball of light and shoots back up again. So initially sorry, UFO. It's pretty fucking cool.
0: That's pretty cool. <laughs> that is terrifying and Hi. crazy and like also, also really kind of cool. cool. Yeah, <laughs> super cool. I'm very jealous. I've never had an alien encounter. Uh, I've only seen close encounters with the fourth kind and then had nightmares for a long oh, time. Oh, the
2: fourth. Wait, the movie with uh, Mila Jovovich? Yes. That Ooh. movie. Well, because it, it was, was horrifying. Yeah,
0: and like I saw it when I was a child. Which who let me do that? It was my mom. Um, and they have like scenes interjected that are supposed to be like a documentary, like you know, yeah, which aren't? I looked it up recently because I was like, was that real?
2: Because they really marketed it like yeah. it was. Um, yeah. I saw that movie. <laughs> I saw that movie when I was in college. And I saw that movie at, like, the very beginning, I think, of uh, spring break. So most of the campus was empty. And the only people in the building that I was in watching it were the two friends I was watching it with. And I had to leave that building to walk back to my dorm. And I, being the person that I am, put my headphones in immediately because I didn't want to hear any external sounds as I walked back. And I thought that I heard this, like, creak. I don't know how to describe it other than terrifying. It sounded <laughs> like if you amplified all of the noise that you would hear rustling through like the trees and combined it with what you expected an alien xenomorph to sound like. Um, all the things I hate. <laughs> and I took, I took out one headphone being like, there's no way that I'm hearing this and definitely just psyching myself up. And I took out my headphones and it was like... Rah! And I turn oh, around yeah. and there was a shadow coming towards me, crawling on like all fours. And then I just realized it was this guy, Ben, that had been watching the movie with me. And I was like, well, our
0: friendship's over. So oh, Damn it, Ben. <laughs> damn it, Ben. Um, okay, well, that is some great spooky shit. Um, <laughs> and also, you know, for whoever is continuing to listen, thank you. And if you thank have you your so, own- so, so much. Yeah, if you have your own spooky shit, Email it to us at Mm -hmm. ossuarypodcast at gmail.com. Or shoot
2: us a DM on Instagram, whatever your preferred method of
0: communication is. Or, you know, if you're my mom or some (laughs) friends, just text me. Yeah. That sounds (laughs) cool too. Um, uh, But yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And I think it would be fun to get some some external spooky shit. We would love that.
1: Mm-hmm. so guys please uh follow us on social media we have a website as well ospreypodcast.com i believe it is and mm-hmm. um, please rate and review share it with your friends and um join us again next time
0: yeah on the continuation of osprey podcast investigates the long island serial killer
2: this is osprey over and out